0: This season was made possible with support from the Government of Alberta's Heritage Preservation Partnership Program and Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, Southern Alberta.
1: Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be I'm in over my head, what do I really need Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me
0: Welcome to In Over My Head, I'm Michael Bartz. For this season, I'll be taking a look back at our Alberta parks. So often our national parks get all the attention, but we need to remember our provincial parks. These spaces contribute to a healthier planet, and we need to protect them. One way to appreciate them more is to get to know their history. And trust me, there is a lot to discover. My first conversation had me learning about why our provincial parks were created and some of the challenges they faced along the way.
1: Hi, I'm Jessica DeWitt. I'm an environmental historian, editor, and digital strategist. I am the provincial parks gal. So I went into my PhD at the University of Saskatchewan Um, I'm originally, I'm American, and um, I moved here, and the reason I moved to Canada was that I wanted to do a comparative history of Canadian and American parks, specifically at the state and provincial level, and I wasn't going to learn Canadian history in the U.S. (laughs) Um, So I came here, and um, one of the reasons I picked up, one of the myriad of reasons that I picked up this dissertation is that practically no one has written about provincial and state parks. There is one monograph in the States that talks about the state park movement in entirety. That was written by a former, um, I believe, the head of Florida State Parks. Um, and there's, there wasn't, before my study, a single thing that talked about provincial parks in Canada, Canada-wide and there's only a handful of monographs on either side of the border, and almost none of them are written by academic historians. They're uh, written by hobbyist historians or written by people who have been commissioned by certain park systems, et cetera, to write histories, which of course creates a very different kind of history. So I think one of the things I wanted to deal with in my dissertation is to acknowledge that there is a massive gap in our knowledge and understanding of parks at this middle level. And I argue, and I continue to argue, that they are actually much more important to our overall history because more people visit them. There are more of them. They're more accessible. For instance, myself growing up in, I've never been to American National Park. And growing up in rural Pennsylvania, I never dreamed of ever even being able to go to a national park. And I think that sometimes in Western Canada, people have a suede idea of that because things seem so close, like Banff is right there. But, you know, national parks are still very inaccessible to a lot of people, whether it's distance or money, and you need money to cover the distance. And state and provincial parks were developed specifically to fill that gap in many ways so the relative way that both professional historians and, and popular historians have ignored provincial parks and state parks is troubling to me.
0: Why do you think they're not focusing on provincial parks? Why, is, why are the, the national parks getting all the attention?
1: One of the reasons is that national parks are easier to write about because they have one singular national um, narrative that can be linked to that changes through time, of course, And it differs from park to park a little bit, but you can always tie it into that. And that also means that the records for a lot of these parks are easier to find um, because they're going to be at the Library and Archives Canada. They're going to be at the Library of Congress in the States. So it's just easier to link them into a national narrative. Also, because state and provincial parks are so familiar to people, they get looked over, I believe, because we often don't think of the thing that is closest to us as being important. So if you are used to, say, going camping at a small provincial park 40 minutes from your home when you're growing up, you're not thinking of that as being a significant event. (laughs) Whereas if we're thinking of The grand narratives that can be connected to Banff or to Yellowstone, et cetera, those really take people's imagination. It's also just exceptionally hard to research state and provincial parks, which I found out when I started this dissertation. No one stopped me, though. (laughs) They probably should have been like, just "Mm, maybe this is going to be difficult. Um, And, you know, going into this, I had no idea how to make this study happen. And it took a long time to kind of get my head around it. And I now know why (laughs) there aren't that many done because it's just, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of provincial and state parks. And each state park system is, or provincial park system is completely different. And you cannot get the same clean narrative out of them. It takes a lot more work. And um, I think that's one reason that they're ignored.
0: Yeah. Do you remember like when you were, you said, you know, it was difficult to find some of that information. Do you remember like ever being like frustrated or any kind of
1: yes. <laughs> times where it was? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I, so for my dissertation, I looked at, I ended up looking at Alberta and Ontario in Canada and Idaho and Pennsylvania in the States. And I don't know the exact number, but that's well over 500 parks. And I remember just, I was like, how am I ever going to make sense? <laughs> Of the development of 500 parks over 100 years, which is when I, I, if you ever look at my dissertation, those listening, (laughs) there is a visualization that I ended up doing that helped me immensely, which plots types of parks through time. So I kind of went with a visual temporal model to wrap my mind around it.
0: Um, yeah, I guess we can talk a bit about like the history of Alberta parks because that was included in your dissertation. Tell me kind of how some of these parks started in Alberta.
1: So Alberta was quite late to starting their provincial park system. And one of the main reasons for that is because of the Natural Resources Act of 1930. Didn't happen until 1930. <laughs> so uh, Alberta didn't have control of its natural resources or its land until then. So they had no way of making parks. But as soon as that happened, the United Farmers of Alberta, who were in power at the time, really jumped on it. They saw this happening, and uh, I believe John Brownlee was in charge of the party at the time. And he had gone to England and seen these beautiful parks, and he was inspired. And this also corresponds with the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Um, So I think a lot of us are very familiar with those scenes of, you know, dried farmlands and struggling families in the West. And as a party that largely saw itself as representing the rural populace in Alberta, the UFA was very concerned about this. And they saw that people were leaving the province in droves because of, It was just really hard. (laughs) And they saw these provincial parks, a potential provincial park system, as kind of helping to stop that from happening, stop people from leaving. Um, So in 1932, they, on one day, created eight different parks. And all of these parks were created on small lakes. They were beach parks, and they were very small parks. And they were created on beaches because... (laughs) The FA thought that if we created parks that were on these beaches that were in rural areas, that these rural families could gather there and being near this wet lake <laughs> would make them want to stay. We think of um, farm life as isolating, but back then it was particularly isolating. Um, so they saw these places as kind of like gathering spots for rural families because that was another reason that they thought people were leaving was because they were isolated and lonely. And if they had these places to get wet and swim and to meet other farm families, they thought that this would boost morale and people would stay in the province. So that was largely, I think, a very interesting impetus behind these first eight parks.
0: I don't know if you if you found this in your research, but like, did it help? Did people stay partly because of the park? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know. I did not find any evidence to suggest whether or not this actually boosted morale. I think we'd have to do a much d- deeper dive, and uh, which we might talk about later with ordinary people. It's really hard to find... Uh, Accounts like someone, a farmer from that time, being like, "I went over to the new local beach. (laughs) It was great. Now I'm staying. (laughs) Yes, everything's good." And uh, it also was uh, spurred by anti-urbanism. The UFA was very anti-urban. And they did not want people to move to the cities or out of the province, so it's like keep people rural. So these parks are going to keep people rural. So they also were not thinking of the urban population really at all in these these first eight parks. This is for rural residents.
0: Um, yeah, and actually, let's maybe let's um since we're talking about the 30s and stuff, let's talk about maybe the first provincial park in Alberta, which was um Aspen Beach Provincial Park, and and Go Lake was there. Um, tell me a little about that.
1: Yeah. So yeah, Aspen Beach is called the first. Provincial Park, but they were all created on the same day, so I think it's the first Provincial Park because it was first alphabetically. <laughs> um, but so Aspen Beach on Gull Lake, so it's fairly close to Red Deer. It's a, a small beach. I think it was 17 acres when it was first created. Very small. It um, it was a beach that was already used by a an established cottage community that was on the lake. So cottagers that probably. I would assume, I don't have the data in this, but I would assume they're mainly Edmonton folk. So the, the province creates this park and they immediately create, build a pier out into the lake, um, which is like heralded as this big thing. They're very proud of this pier. And the problem is that within a couple years of creating this park and building this pier, the lake starts to drop significantly, very quickly. Um, With, I don't remember the exact dates, but by the end of the 1930s, so within less than a decade, the pier is completely on dry land. (laughs) So that's fast. That's a fast um, uh, change. So folks are, are very upset about this. And the province is exceptionally upset. And we also have to talk about how the fact during this time, there's a change in government. So you go from the UFA, who makes the parks in 1932, and just three years later, 1935, the Alberta Social Credit government comes into power for a very long time. And the Alberta Social Credit government is much more conservative, particularly fiscally. So they inherit these eight parks and, uh, they're not impressed <laughs> cause they aren't making money, right? They're just, they're money pits and, <laughs> uh, they end up closing like four of them. Um, but we'll go back to Aspen beach. <laughs> so Aspen beach, the water is dropping. There's studies, people, no one is completely sure why the water level in, in this, this nat- it is a natural lake, um, was dropping. It's probably a combination of the fact that it was a drought, <laughs> so it's the 1930s, and also just um, use, agricultural use, bring, taking the water before it's coming, the water from the the sources that feed the lake, right? So it's probably a combination of man-made and natural forces. But basically, the Socred government is just absolutely disgusted with this park. Um, and I found letters where they're talking about how if this this lake is... <laughs> is receding, then the park is useless, right? So if the pier is not underwater, then the park is useless, and it's a sand heap, and just so much derogatory commentary on this park, so much so that by the 1940s, they try, they give it back <laughs> to the cottage community because they don't want it. They want nothing to do with it, and they give it back to the cottage community so yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's hard to get into all the details here, but it's a it's a really great example of how the parks are built on a certain idea of nature. And also, I find that when we create a park, we expect that land to remain the same. It's museumizing nature, right? And That's not how natural systems work. Whether it's natural or human-caused factors that are making the changes, the parks are are going to change through time. This just happened very dramatically. So uh, the cottagers having it during that decade didn't go very well because they wouldn't let anyone else use the beach, basically. (laughs) Um, So there's lots of complaints that the park was no longer welcoming to outside folk. Sometime in the 1950s, I believe, the provincial park takes it back a bit reluctantly. And they, they, they go through all these studies to figure out why this lake is receding. And then they go through all these studies on how they can fix it. And they actually come up with a, the idea of pumping water into Gall Lake from the Blindman River is what they settle on. And to this day, for recreation purposes, water is pumped into Gall Lake. And it actually causes (laughs) environmental problems, the pumping of this, because you're taking water from a a river. So you're causing that kind of degradation. And you're also causing issues with um, agricultural runoff. And (laughs) it's actually the pumping of water into the lake has caused the water uh, quality to go down considerably. But it's all worth it because the lake is visually good to look at. It's not farther away from the beach than you expect. (laughs) It's just, I think, a very interesting case study of the lengths at which we will manipulate nature for, specifically for recreation. Like, to me, you just, you know, adjust and be like, okay, the the lake is a little bit farther away than it was when we, (laughs) like, we'll just move the beach out. We'll build another pier. But no, that's not... (laughs) That's not the reaction that the Alberta government had. And I think we don't think of these little, th- these, all of these maneuverings behind the scenes of all these parks, even these relatively small parks, to make them what we see today or to maintain them as we see them today.
0: Yeah, I guess. So let's fast forward a little bit. So during the 50s, there's a there's a big boom. There's a lot of provincial parks happening, right? And then you kind of get into the 70s. Um, and another park that really interested me was the Fish Creek Provincial Park. Yes. Tell me about that.
1: Yes. So in the 1970s in Canada, there's a near urban park movement that spreads from Ontario across the country. Um, and this was suddenly an idea almost out of nowhere that provinces were responsible for urban recreation and like providing places for urban folks to go that were accessible. Because before this, urban parks were the domain of the city for the most part. And so in um, Calgary, we have Fish Creek Provincial Park, and it was created from former ranch land primarily. And It was really interesting because this is one of the, with this near urban park movement, you have some of the first inklings of going to the public for their opinion on parks. And this wasn't the case before this decade that I found. Usually parks are created top down. I think today we have much more involvement of people and the internet has made it much easier to poll people on what they think. But it wasn't until 1970s that you really see Folks, um, government folks, like really reaching out to the public. So, what they do is they put this survey in the paper, and it's a fairly large survey. It's really colorful. It has like great illustrations. <laughs> um, it's meant to catch their eye, and it's asking them about a proposed park at Fresh Creek. And the response to this, I think, was is fairly remarkable. Um, From the file that I found, there are 25,000 to 35,000 responses, which for like a survey that's in a newspaper, I think that's pretty good because most people are going to look at that and just throw it in the trash, right? Even today when it's easier to answer an online survey, most of the time we're like, can we click out of this faster? (laughs) So you have this (laughs) All of these resp- impassioned responses and some of the best ones, which I think you saw, like one of the biggest concerns was that it was going to be a place for hippies. And so like one of my favorite quotes, which I named, named the, the section after is, no motorcycles, hippies or Catholics. And I think that really gets to the heart of what was in the survey the conservatism of Calgary's citizens really comes to the fore um, about who they think should use a park, like who, who, what a park should be like, what populace should the park should cater to. And just like this really, this intense fear of the counterculture and that this is just going to be a place where people tent and do free love and, um, and also just like, That this is going to be something that the government just sinks all of our cash into, which I think is, you know, very Alberta. Um, And we can see examples of this today, of course, just this discussed with government spending. Yeah, but these are like the write-in responses, right? So. But almost all of the write-in responses were very interesting and notable. But that's the thing about write-in responses is that it's usually people who have something really good to say or really negative to say. But needless to say, it's a fascinating example of like, just the, the ways that people can think of parks as being a negative thing. I think they're often presented that everyone loves parks and... Parks are such good things, and it's much more complicated than that. And oftentimes people are very hesitant for parks to be built. And I think Fish Creek is one of those examples, other, other than also just capturing a really, really interesting period of time in history. And um, if people are interested in rowdyism in parks, I suggest checking out Ben Bradley's work because he's been working specifically on this. Um, he's found some really great stuff.
0: On rowdyism. Yeah. Tell me yeah. about tell me about that.
1: So this is this is something that's connected to this idea of hippies and just this fear of um the parks are spaces where people are uncontrolled. And there's a fear of like drinking and substance use. And um, this is also when the regulation of park behavior becomes even more pronounced. So parks are places where you have to act in a certain way. Um, and also, there's also a very big racialized um, aspect of this. I've written about how, you know, if a bunch of, uh, you know, like a, a white family, extended family is having a reunion and they're they're drinking some beers, people are going to turn the other way, right? But if um, a group of indigenous and house folks are just in the park drinking some beers, that's not going to be okay, right? So we kind of use these ideas of what park behavior is to regulate by a class and race and age, like <laughs> we're going to be suspicious of teenagers. And, you know, I've found things that say, you know, teenagers shouldn't be allowed to be alone, you know, like they need to be supervised in these parks. Or So when we think of parks, yeah, I just... I think it's important to think of them as very regulated spaces. We have people who patrol them to make sure that you are doing the right things. And there's good ways of being in nature and bad ways of being in nature. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah, maybe we can talk a bit more about like, you know, the importance of including regular people in in Alberta Parks history, the provincial park. So yeah, tell me about that.
1: Yeah, um, so I think this connects to my background significantly. So I'm American originally. I grew up in rural Western Pennsylvania in Cooksburg, Pennsylvania, which is a, a community on the outskirts of Cook Forest State Park. And uh, my parents owned rental cabins, so that was their their industry when I was growing up. So I grew up with an idea of parks as places of work. I grew up with understanding of parks as livelihood and that the health of a park meant the health of my my family or my community. So I find that I go into park history a bit differently than other people because of that perspective. I see the place as a place of work first, um, and I – I don't think most people do. Most people think of them as vacation spots. They don't think of them as serious places. They're like places of fun, right? Of good memories, not of toil and difficulty and extremely hard work because small business tourism is extremely hard work. So I think that's important for thinking about how I, I approach these things. So most park history, whether it's written by academics or by more popular folks, um, more popular writers, focuses on, A, on origin stories. So a lot of park histories cover how did this park Mm -hmm. come to be, and then the story ends. (laughs) Or they talk a lot about the, you know, the government officials or the activists the bigger activists that made the park happen. And then it ends. And the problem with this is that the story continues. (laughs) And it also makes park history into a kind of a policy history type deal. And there's a lot of reasons for this. And one of them is that the sources for this kind of history is just so much easier to find. You're going to find it in the government archives. You're going to find it in the provincial archives And it's going to be easily labeled, right? But what I argue is that we have to think of the ordinary people because that's who the park actually matters to. And that includes park visitors. But even more importantly, we have to think about the people who rely on the park for their livelihood and also the people who have been pushed to the peripherals of parks by park creation. So in Canada, that's namely Indigenous folks. And so thinking about, you know, gateway communities. So gateway communities are those uh, outside of parks that kind of have the, the facilities that have the accommodations, et cetera. And thinking about how do these people take care of the park? And when if you read the work, the writings of many government officials or environmentalists, um, they will act that these people who, who work in parks or who are on the peripheries of parks are uh, bad for the parks, right? That they can't be stewards because they are making money. Like to make money off of a park, if you're not the government or someone who is super wealthy, (laughs) is seen as being bad. Bad for nature and not in the park's interest. Um, So I like to push back on those narratives and try to open up the way that we look at park history and we think of parks not just as places of recreation not just as places of supposed nature preservation but places of like actual work and actual like cultural significance um, to the people who live there not just the people who come from afar
0: yeah and and in reading your work you also talked about like how that's some of those people are kind of unintentional environmentalists, right? Like the, they're, the, the stewardship work they're doing to maintain that land, like I think it was in the States, it wasn't in Alberta, but there was that one river that they were maintaining, right? Yes, um, yeah. Yeah, tell me a bit about that.
1: Yeah, so I, I love the idea of unintentional environmentalism or expedient environmentalism. And so I argue that, and I, I I'm building off of a lot of writers and scholars of color I need to point out, such as, um, Carolyn Finney, who has written about this, that our idea of environmentalism or environmentalists as people is very whitewashed. It assumes that, A, people have an understanding of ecology. Like, if you don't understand how ecological systems work, a lot of environmental, mainstream environmentalism kind of writes you off, right? So you have to have a certain level of education. Um, you have the, the time <laughs> to uh, devote, to specifically environmental work. You have to have the assets to make that happen. And so what happens is that there's a very, um, an idea of environmentalism that cuts out a lot of people. And if you open it up to thinking of unintentional or expedient environmentalism, you really open it up to anyone who cares about that land. And, if a person is invested in that space and they're wanting to take care of it, the impetus behind that, does that matter? Is it, is it more virtuous to be an outsider who comes in and has a, a master's degree in biology and can be like, this river has these XYZ issues and this is bad and I'm going to fix it. Um, is that necessarily better than the person who has lived on the river, who relies on it for their livelihood, who recognizes that the degradation of that river is bad because it affects affects them, it affects the place that they live in, right? It affects them personally. And so they, they fight for the cleanliness of the river because of that reason. I think we put on a pedestal one over the other, and it just cuts out a lot of people and also alienates um, a lot of rural folks and indigenous folks from these conversations. yeah, so just thinking of what is the reason behind wanting to preserve a park? So like where I grew up, people noticed the park not being taken care of as much. And for the community I grew up in, that was a big deal because that affected the bottom line. And it's like a tourism community that is, you know, Their province are not that great. So if they lose some of them because the park isn't being taken care of, then that's an issue. So like they have a stake in it that is beyond thinking, oh, this park needs to be taken care of because it's a park and it's beautiful and yada, yada.
0: And then like so... Um, I don't know with your research in Alberta specifically, but I'm just curious, maybe like back home or in the States, like, do you have any, anyone that comes to mind that, that worked in the park or was, yeah, doing that sort of work that, that, um, that you think stands out for you?
1: Yeah. I didn't get a chance to talk to anyone in Alberta for my dissertation because my dissertation was so large. (laughs) I had to cut out some things. And it's funny because When I originally, so I wrote the chapter that you originally read, when I wrote it, I expected those things to be like their own chapters. I expected to be able to be like, here I am doing the work. And then I ended up having to cut back significantly because I didn't have the time or the resources to write these histories of ordinary people because they take more time. They take relationship building. They take uh, sitting in archives for weeks on end trying to find random things. You can't just, you know, bust into a community for a week and think that you're going to get these stories. Right. But okay, so I I didn't get a chance to talk to anyone in Alberta yet, maybe in the future. Um, but when I was in my undergrad, I did a study of the park that I grew up in and I interviewed 32 former and current business owners at the time. And um, I think one of my my favorite stories that I think illustrates this point is I, I talked to one of the, there's several canoe liveries where I grew up, and I talked to one of the owners of these canoe liveries, and like he was very hesitant to speak to me about a lot of topics, particularly the way that he managed the river, because in the past, he had been attacked by... Conservationists. Um, so there's ways that they would his canoe livery like moves rocks in the river. It's a very shallow river, so they would move and make passageways for folks. Um, and there are other ways they would clean up garbage. They would do all these these things in the river that both help their business but also were take kind of a stewardship of the river, right? And conservationists see this as like one of the main threats to the river. But he sees it as an act of love, not just of like he does make money from it, right? But for him, taking care of the river and making sure that people can enjoy the river is an act of love, not just for the river and the land, but also to the people who who come to, to enjoy it. But there's like a genuine fear of backlash. And I think that that's not uncommon and that um, when I was growing up, There was also, like, the main person who was associated with the park was Anthony Cook, who was of the Cook family, so a descendant. And he was exceptionally critical of business owners in the area because they were bad for the the environment of the park. But he makes his money off of oil. (laughs) So uh, it's just like, you know... um, coming in a lot of conservationists or or perceived activists will come in and be critical. And I think that also boils down a lot to the ways that indigenous people, particularly if we're looking at Alberta, you know, if we're thinking of the way they're pushed to the peripheries and that's another way that parks are highly regulated spaces, it's becoming better. They're starting to have some more, some more changes to laws, but you know, when parks were created in the night in the twentieth century, they're saying that part of that was indigenous people can't use this land anymore because that isn't the right way to use the land. They can't hunt here, they can't fish here, they can't encamp here, they can't, you know, they can't use the land because that's bad for it. It's not the right way to use the land. It's not, you know, rich white folks uh riding the train in from Toronto. And taking their picture with a, a rock, you know, like that's the right way to use the land. So, um, gosh, I feel like I'm rambling right now. But all of these things are so interconnected.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I guess generally, Jessica, like, you know, you've, you, provincial parks and their history are very important to you personally and, and as uh, a as an, uh, scholar. I guess, yeah, like, if you could kind of summarize, like, why is it important for us to, to actually study and look at this history of provincial parks? Why should we be doing this?
1: Gosh, that is the $100,000 question. (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, I think it's critical to understand any institution that um, plays a major role in your society. And we more easily see this with national parks. People are like, oh yeah, I get it. Banff is really important. But I think we need to take a step back and think about, about these provincial parks and that Um, particularly within the last several years with, you know, the latest um, swing of trying to close many of them, that we have to understand why they exist in the first place. Sometimes having a very Pollyanna view of parks and not thinking critically about them as places of profit, as places that are not natural. Actually, makes it more difficult to protect them today because government officials understand whether they they may not use it in their propaganda about parks, (laughs) but they understand that parks are more than that, right? That they are tools, right? They're tools of profit for the government of uh, ways to make themselves look good, etc. right? They're always being used. They're not, they're not neutral spaces at all. So even if we love parks, and I love parks, even though I'm very critical of them, I love them as well. Um, even if we love parks, we have to understand the good and the bad of them to be able to protect them because we can't protect something that we don't really understand. And we can't make them better either. Like if we don't understand the fact that parks exclude some people, we can't work to include those people, right? If we don't understand that certain ways of being in parks, the ways that we view particular behaviors in parks exclude indigenous people, then we can't work to make it so that it doesn't do that, right? We can't make things better and if we think parks are this perfect institution, we also can't think beyond them. And it's really hard to think beyond them because parks haven't always existed. They're relatively new in the, the grand scheme of things. Most of Alberta's provincial parks are are well under 100 years old. And so if we want them to continue or if we want to move beyond that to something that we haven't even fathomed yet, right? Because at some point we had never even... Fathomed provincial parks. No one had ever thought of this idea.
0: And um, and I guess yeah, just to round it out, like we've been learning about the history and and why these parks exist and and the reasons for them and some of the kind of ups and downs. Um, yeah, I guess if people want to get involved, whether that's use the parks or protect them, um, what I guess what can people do?
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, I would say that when you visit a park. I would like people to start thinking about it differently, um because I think that it's really helpful to be in the location when you want to start thinking differently about the place. so I would suggest that people when they go to their favorite provincial park to start thinking about the park a little bit differently, think about it critically, think notice who is on the outskirts like what what are what are the businesses where are the buildings. Is there a reserve very nearby? Who is working at the park? Who provides the the concession stand? Like, think about these things. Think about um, what was there before the park. So I, I invite people to just start thinking about it in that way. So that's at a, like an individual level. To help the parks. Hmm. Okay. Well, I think people should be listening to Indigenous people more. So I think... Take the time to understand how the different First Nations relate to the parks that are near them. And if you see a news story about them in the park, read it and understand it. Um, I think certainly getting, keeping up with CPAWS or other groups that are, um, you know, there's a lot of friends of certain parks organizations. And that's always a good way to keep up with what's going on in the parks and what needs to happen and then of course, just thinking about the way that you vote, because the way that you vote right now has a lot to do with how parks are uh, taken care of. And there may be certain parties that are friendlier to parks than others. Yeah, I think those are the main ways to think about your provincial parks. And also to just think about them as not just like, just think about them as because the, the the boundaries of parks are artificial. So if you're thinking about the land being conserved within the boundaries. I challenge people to think broader about broader ecological systems because it doesn't matter if like a very small patch of prairie is conserved in a park if on the other border, other side of the border is just massive intensive agriculture, right? And be wary of people claiming that that's enough. <laughs> Parks are not enough. <laughs> They're not enough. and. um
0: Was there anything else you wanted to say? Any final thoughts?
1: So I think one thing to think about that I want people to think about when they think about park history is that in the post-World War War II uh, era, parks were a necessity for people. And governments, whether they were at the national level, the provincial level in Canada or the state and the federal level in the U.S., specifically viewed parks as a necessity. And they had the duty to provide parks to their people. And that's why you see a huge, massive influx of the creation of parks at the state and provincial level in the 60s and 70s. And they were willing to spend money on them. And in the 80s, that changed and that parks have never been considered as important at the government level since then. And I want people to think about why. Do you believe that parks are a necessity? Do you believe that they are right? because they were considered to be a right for the ordinary citizen to have parks. And that is no longer the case. So I just want people to think about that and to think about, do you think that having access to a park for yourself is as a right? Is that a, is that a human right? It's just an interesting, a very quick change. Like it's a very short period where we, where provincial and state parks are considered to be the thing like And a lot of provincial parks that I visit now are hurting. Like they haven't had infrastructure uh, things in like decades. And so, yeah, how do we, how do we turn that around?
0: Next time on Remembering Alberta Parks, I learn about the geological significance of Castle Wildland, Sheep River, Cypress Hills, and more. Because I want for people to be able to read that or to hear this podcast or whatever, and to be able to look at those rocks and understand why they're there, what story they're telling, and to sort of be able to see with those different layers, right? On the one hand, you're seeing the mountains, but then you can also like practically see, you know, that ancient dry lake bed. In Over My Heads, Remembering Alberta Parks, was produced by Michael Barts with production assistance from Shinichi Hera. Special thanks to all the guests who gave generously of their time and expertise.
1: I'm trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me?
0: This season was made possible with support from the Government of Alberta's Heritage Preservation Partnership Program and Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society Southern Alberta.